This is On Call with Dr. Dave. Today on call, we have Dr. Chris. And Dr. Chris has had a really interesting career. Just, uh, the, I don't really want to speak for you, actually. I was about to say what you do and how you do it. But honestly, it's so far out of what I do. I just practice medicine day in, day out. And you've been on the research side. You've been on kind of the lab side, working on different things. You've even given a TED Talk on some of the work you've done. So you have a much better intro to yourself than I could ever give you. So why don't you just introduce yourself and what you do? Uh, Dave, Ashley, thanks for having me on the show. Well, you know, the funny thing is about medicine is it can get as broad or as narrow as you want. And the horizon continually extends beyond whatever you learn, right? And it reminds you to stay humble. And I think that the best of us and wisest of us feel smaller and smaller in their accumulation of knowledge, no matter how grand, right? And so I feel honored to have like seen these different facets of medicine and pursue what I think is like medicine's greatest calling to improve human function and to restore like restore the health and well-being of people that have lost it through either, uh, you know, a mistake of their choosing or some inadvertent uh, act of God, you know, if I want to be kind of fatalistic about it. But, you know, and I, I think that so I have worked in academic medicine and I have worked with uh, different federal agencies and trying to make wounded warriors better at recovering from amputation, moving robotic hands that are sensorized that you can feel uh, and touch and operate like a regular hand, it blends some with some early machine learning. And, uh, and then I experienced the acute frustration thereafter where you realize that the transitional medicine pipeline is you know somewhere between 17 and 25 years long and that the political will and financial interest or lack thereof in trying to provide for the disenfranchised populations missing arms or uh, spinal cord injured or brain injured just isn't there on a day-to-day basis with the rare exception of the Department of Defense, the VA and other kind of embedded institutional players. So, uh, and, you know, and then I tra- transitioned to more kind of like here and now, like you said, being a, you know, a doc on the ground, running a clinical service uh, in more of a rural area and trying to provide for the needs of a rural community where that has been historically unmet. So I've, uh, I've enjoyed this broad, this, this broad exposure to medicine. Yeah. And that stuff is endlessly fascinating to me. That was one of the first things that got me interested in just working on eyes in general. I was thinking about robotic eyes, transplants. You know, I'm I'm the surgeon when somebody loses an eye, I'm the one that has to remove it. It's, you know, not just a general ophthalmologist that does it most of the time. It's my specialty that does it. So I have just endless amounts of patients that lose one eye, both eyes, loss of vision, and they're getting better with some of those artificial retinas, implantable devices. I was just reading an article on that today with a new device that's implantable. So that stuff is endlessly fascinating to me. And I love reading about it, but I just, you know, as much as I would love to kind of tinker, just my day-to-day life doesn't really allow for that. And so I look at you as somebody that's pursued it in a way where you can work on it and you, you've carved out time. And I think that does sometimes take an academic position because in private practice, carving out time for research is really difficult unless it's research that is making money quickly. And like you said, some of the most important things are things that take 15, 20 years, even even with a lot of funding. It takes a lot of effort to get an idea through 
you know, the early stages and testing and safety and the FDA with devices, it, it's, it's a, it's a huge hurdle, which, you know, as much as I loved and I'm fascinated by it, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to jump into that. Well, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase badly, Dave, but to piggyback on your comments, I think that great civilizations are defined by having men that plant trees under whose shade they will never sit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a Seneca quote or something, but it, but it really encapsulates like that you need to have a long-term ambiguous vision of general good to execute on the most noble interest in a population. And I think that private practice is just constrained by a smaller financial cycle with, with a shallower reserve of capital. And it simply can't work at that time scale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fortunate that we have academic institutions that like maintain that nobility. And that's one of the things that I think I grew up in the DC area and knew people that worked for like NIH and the C- and the CDC and 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 uh, actually the CIA a lot of people and it was like that belief in institutions that you can accomplish things that span multiple generations, you know. Uh, I think that that was like ennobling to me at the time. And uh, but you know, private practice you can't knock them for being greedy or whatever. You know, they're just trying to maintain viability. You know and uh, but academic medicine too, like they're not they're not immune to any financial pressures to to maintain success to maintain success in research. You need to be a person that can write grants well, which is like writing pop songs, right? <laughs> it, need, it needs it needs like a, hook. a catchy. It needs a hook. Yeah. It needs a jingo. It needs like a bridge. <laughs> And like three, three repeats on the chorus, you know, aims one, two, and three, you know, <laughs> it's, it's true. Like these mnemonics exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and so that eventually the best of our scientists, the senior researchers, you know, find themselves in word documents, you know, cra- crafting these grants, making sure that they can support a large research lab. And it's challenging, but, uh, and they get a little divorced from the day-to-day operations of their their science, which is what they fell in love with, right? It's one of those strange yeah. marriages, you, you know, where you know the person you married matures into something you don't recognize, and that's, <laughs> that's research in some way. And uh, but but it's also it's also super rewarding when you step back, like you you have you have so graciously uh, done for me, and said, you know, there's some things that you've accomplished, and and I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember going to your house one time and just seeing a 3D printed hand that had oh, all the yeah. articulations and the tendons. And that that was just amazing. And just the thought of you working on things where somebody could actually not only use a hand, but potentially have sensory input, be able to feel again and touch again. Like you said, just restoring function to people that have lost it. That's, I mean, there's not much of a higher calling than that. I put things back together as much as I can, but there's limitations when there's been a nerve severed or the nerve of the eye is damaged in a way, you know, I can make things look good. I can put bones back where they belong, but it's really difficult to restore function. You know, some of those nerves never come back after cancer excisions. People can not move half their face sometimes after massive trauma. You know, the blindness restoring function is, is that's the, it's a dream. That's the holy grail. That's the dream yeah. of medicine is not just a band-aid, but a return, true return to, return to normality. To yeah, yeah that, that's it, you know. The, 
Yeah, re- return. You know, it's it's returned to all the things that we take for granted, anyways, right? The mm-hmm. the ease at which we draw breath, or the ease at which we can describe our surroundings based on a rich visual input, or you know, even just having an attached vestibular sense, knowing that mm-hmm. you know we have these internal gyroscopes that we're not falling over all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're all they're all these eloquent mechanisms that we all take for granted. And they work in concert, and I think that um, you know, restoring vision to the blind is a holy grail. You know, and it's been, it's been one of the aims of neural prosthetics too. You know, whether it's working at the um, the retinal nerve itself or the occipital lobe, and mm-hmm. like our group, our group worked with the uh, at the University of Utah worked with neural engineering group and another group in Barcelona implanting a hundred by hundred electrode grid onto the occipital lobe of a person uh, I think that had acquired blindness for two years, and. And they were trying to cross-correlate visual perceptions to electrical current simulations on separate electrodes or montages of electrodes, a grouping, right? Think of it as a, as a spiky waffle iron, you know, with electrically active <laughs> tips. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's quasi-destructive because it presses in, you know, there are six, six layers of uh, cortex and it presses it on the back of it. So it's a little destructive, but fortunately there's like enough resolution to spare and you know, that, that cortex wasn't resolving anything in this acquired blindness patient, Mm -hmm. but you know, really, I think that this patient was never able to really cross correlate, like where, where the stimuli would be, you know, Mm -hmm. like it it might be like pop up at a a different area or be like a synthesis of like, you know, fireworks display or something. And so it was hard to derive functional vision out of that. And I think they've been a lot more success with retinal prosthetics Right or retinal nerve yeah. prosthetics? Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah, the retinal prosthetics have come Optical. a long way. Like, I think the Argus Two is the most recent iteration of a retinal prosthetic, and for some people, they can resolve lines and doors, so they can walk around enough where they're not bumping into certain objects. the The utility of that's really limited, though. It has to be a certain layer of the retina, so it's really good for people that have lost a certain layer. But this is not the deeper layers. So there's something called the retinitis pigmentosa. So it's really used for those people because they lose one layer of the retina, but the other is still intact. So you can pass the signal deeper and then still get the signal along the optic nerve. And then it's still going along the pathways that are natural for you. So up is still up, down is down, left and right are still preserved in that situation. So it's just easier to know where you're sending the signal. So I think that's been a little more successful, but it's a very limited group of people that are even candidates for something like that. I, I I think you just touched upon something very important there. So, you know, when you have these bespoke, you have small patient populations and you have to craft a, a very specific device for a limited number of people and you have to make it financially viable to manufacture, mm-hmm. distribute, approve, whatever, extra. It's it's challenging. And I think that we we were able to use some machine learning and creating inherent flexibility in the software so we could have a spatial array of electrodes wherever they were by by their grid mechanics they align one with another you know usually 0.1 millimeters away from one another mm-hmm. and but then in software we could reinterpret however we want to send the signal based mm-hmm. on some light machine learning algorithms and uh, i i think that if you can't manufacture custom hardware for everybody with, you know, unique physical constraints about how it's going to be shaped, what, what geometry needs to fit, 
then at least you can create a software that has inherent flexibility to uh, be able to port using the same hardware again and again, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that software runs on, like, you know, it's, it's uh, agnostic to hardware. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that we have like cross uh, cross application of some of these devices by more flexible software. Yep, it'll increase funding. It'll increase the patient. Well, just even the usability. Who's going to buy? It, who's going to dump money into it? If you can make it more flexible, you're going to just attract more. Yeah, you're going to attract more, more money, money and also more patients. You're going to help a greater number of people as well. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the flexibility is hard in the hardware because everybody's you know, their skull shape, their size, the exact area that's damaged is always going to be different. So that's going to be a, a difficult challenge. I feel like when you try to sell these or these small population bespoke products, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you enter Shark Tank, you know, you're like, look, okay, there's a patient population of like 200 people in this universe. And these patients are severely affected. And I'm going to let them see lines, you know, have, have <laughs> yeah. the equivalent of you know, lawnmower man, computer graphics from the 1990s, yeah. you know, and be able to resolve like the bit, but you know, in, in terms of a functional impact, I think it just moves the dial a little bit and it doesn't allow them to like earn money outside the house or have a decreased care burden mm-hmm. or even reduce their risk of like self-injury through falls or, you know, God forbid, manipulating a motor vehicle, you know, mm-hmm. heavy equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then you're like, yeah, we're going to help 200 people, and we just need 20 million dollars. Who's gotta say this pitch? Who's investing? I'm not. I'm not into this pitch. <laughs> right, right, but, want, it, but you know, but look at it. look at all look at all the best sci-fi movies. Take Terminator, okay? <laughs> yep. Right, like that is a custom design solution. I mean, I it guess is. there are a bunch of them in the future. We'll have to find out. <laughs> we'll have to find out. But, but know that like one of those things probably costs a ton of money, mm-hmm. and and uh and i and and then or look at i don't know we could look at like luke skywalker and the hand that he has right love like, that hand. All, all those things are <laughs> what everybody dreams about it's like our ideals are, are right. immortalized in these movies but then when you get down to the nitty-gritty the financials of it it makes zero sense from a shark tank perspective right yeah <laughs> and uh, Unle- yeah unless it's broader or it shows broader application like it's not a product it's a company do you get what I'm saying? What they say on yeah. Shark Tank where it's just, it's not this one thing for this one person. It's actually, we're just applying this greater thing to these one people to move the dial. So it's how it's sold. and But it's bespoke now. Right. And then hopefully in a hundred years, it is just, you know, version, the- version one and version 200 works for everybody. Right. Yeah. Most fingers. <laughs> I... You know, I think a, a use case, I, I think like the big things, the, the best use cases are like the cochlear implant, the pacemaker, the defibrillator. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like some of these newer techniques for like helping your bowels or your, your, like your, your guts move appropriately mm-hmm. or to stimulate the pancreas to, to uh, modulate how the pancreas works in diabetes. Those are probably some of like the most exciting things that have broader potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know. We'll. Stay tuned, folks. Yeah, it's fascinating. But like, like I said, I'm grateful there are people like you working on stuff like that because I'm on the user end. I wait for somebody to make something, and then when it's approved, I would, you know, I'll I'll surgically implant it. But I'm not the one designing it to begin with. Yeah, i I think that I think there's a lot of heavy lifting. You know, one of the funny things 
involved in research is that like, you know, growing up, I think you assume that like the march of, of technology and progress is some like in, invisible force, kind of like Adam Smith's hand, just pushing civilization forward. But then like when you're involved in it, you realize like how painful it is and <laughs> how like one step forward, maybe three steps back and you need to rewrite the code base and that you need to recalibrate everything you've ever thought or that you're like, you know, two layers into something and you realize how wrong you, you were. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's humbling. And I think that, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I think it's, I think it's an, an like it's, it's to, to feel the granularity of, of human progress. And uh, it's, it's, there's, there's a, I think a titch of, resentment among basic basic scientists because they know what they're doing is going to be capitalized on by somebody else like you know not to disparage yeah you know the practice of medicine but you know like you know for like spinal hardware or for orthopedic implants right like like uh, the basic researchers are not seeing the fruits the financial fruits of that labor Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the uh, ophthalmologist that developed botulinum injections, so he developed that for lephrospasm, twitching eyelids. Another doc was working on it for strabismus, so eyes that didn't align, injecting the muscles. So mm-hmm. they developed the oh, medical geez. use of botulinum, mm-hmm. and they have not made the billions that Botox has. You know, the name brand Botox came out and used that right. technology and saw another application and then they've made billions, and yet the people that developed it that were looking purely at a functional mindset to help people, they're not the ones that made the money. And so I would love to look at options in the future, and I, I think universities might need to, like you said, it's, it's hard because there's a big financial burden on them to do research, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but intellectual property, I do believe, needs to be better protected. And if things do become commercially and financially viable, I do think the researchers should get some of that in the return. That'll also stimulate just the interest. If you're an undergrad and you hear about one of your professors making it big by staying in academia and making, you know, a new advancement in medicine, and then they have a million dollars and they're, you know, flying to Italy to take a nice vacation, Mm -hmm. that might make it a little more interesting to go into medical research. Right. Absolutely. And, and I, I think what we're seeing with like the NCAA and their royalties and their micro royalties uh, and like streaming services paves a paves a intellectual framework for the idea that, you know, royalties don't need to be calculated at whole percentages. They can be very fractional yes. and mm-hmm. that they can go through like many, many, many layers, you know, and that's, that was one of the promises of the, the blockchain, I guess. But, but um you know, that's, that's complicated. I don't want to even go there. <laughs> yeah. We could probably lose like half the listeners if we start talking blockchain <laughs> right now. You'll lose this one. <laughs> no, thanks. Well, and also on the patient side of things, you're also involved in patient care, day-to-day encounters with just the people in these situations. When you think about just some of those interesting encounters with your patients, I know you had a couple ideas when you were chatting before the podcast uh, have a couple share stories worth sharing. Yeah, I got a great story. Uh, this is one that you haven't heard. You're going to love it. So a, a patient of mine who happened to just be kind of a contemporary of, of my age is very successful, uh, young guy in his early thirties in finance, working at Goldman Sachs, 
who was riding at Deer Valley, a downhill mountain bike course, and chose one of the old school mountain bike courses with a lot of drops and then not with any transitions, which, like a classic problem in physics, throws you over the handlebars on your <laughs> face sure. onto the world's like most delicate structure, the cervical spine, the neck. And, uh, you know, he bent his head back and he unfortunately uh, injured his, his spinal cord so badly that it needed a surgical stabilization and uh, left him quadriplegic mm-hmm. from the level of about the shoulders down, right? Yeah, he could move wow. his neck, but couldn't move the shoulders. Wow. Super bright guy, though, who kind of, who had a, the most generous spirit I've, I've ever met in a patient. And he just believed in the indomitability of like of uh, of the human spirit and wouldn't let anything get him down. So he negotiated to stay on with his work part time, doing uh, doing work with a head array and gaze tracking to mm-hmm. continue his job. He was slower, right? But he was able to use assistive technology to run a computer interface, a, a you know a two D plane mm-hmm. with like two other two other methods of clicking, and then he used. Uh, uh, speech recognition technology to be able to input richer text. But, you know, he was a pioneer for adaptive recreational sports, learning how to navigate and sail a kayak. And then he learned how to ski on a custom adapted cart ski, which is basically two skis with, with linear actuators that can turn uh, for the audience as pizza or French fries or left mm-hmm. or right and uh, could, could stop. So, you know, and for, how is he controlling that? Yeah, with with uh, different ways. Like one was a joystick that he could move that was attached to his chin. Wow, that would provide left and right movement, and then forward and back for slowing down or speeding up, separating the skis or that's amazing together. Or or we had, um, and so we found out that if you just bring a quadriplegic who has thermal regulation issues to a ski slope, and then you say go to town, go nuts, <laughs> they freak out, right? They become paralyzed with fear, but that's, that's reasonable. But, uh, we had to create, like, um, I wasn't part of this group as a primary lead. My colleague was, and he created a, um, computer, computer simulator of like the ski using some undergraduate and graduate students to develop this program, but using the ski, the kayak uh, to, uh, to, you know, understand the control methodologies either with like a joystick that's based on the chin or a for the most limited for people that have lost the ability to to really move their neck at all they have a sip and puff which is a basically a straw that you suck or, or you suck or blow in and you can encode different amounts of meaning with like patterns so like you know sip 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 puff might mean something different than sip puff sip or wow. you know you can encode <laughs> lots of different meanings if we're left, right, slow down, go go faster, and uh, right, and then last, it's almost like down to like basic computer programming ones and zeros. You're just like yeah. puff, puff, sip, yeah. like sip, and it's just it's like Morse yeah, code. one one zero 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 one right. one. That's amazing. It gets, <laughs> it gets down to information theory, like how many bits of information can yeah. you transmit? Mm-hmm. You know, wow. for like uh, mechanical control, and then you think about these things called degrees of freedom. You know, left, right, that's one degree of freedom along mm-hmm. continuum. And then so and then those things expand, you know, as in a logarithmic way. It's it's fun. So, you know, we got him skiing and uh we got him skiing, we got him sailing on reservoirs in, in the mountains, and he was doing fantastic. 
And then I had a hypothesis, and this is unpublished, but I'll share it with the world because I don't believe I'm ever going to take it anywhere. But it was that maybe if we use machine learning algorithms on the existing muscles of the cervical spine, like the shoulder girdle, which is an old school way of just saying neck muscles, shoulder mm-hmm. muscles, arm mm-hmm. muscles. If we listen with enough, enough sources, like 50 plus sources of electrodes pasted on the skin, and we try to understand what the person is trying to do and cross-correlate that to all the signals we, we achieve, we can't say that one spike equals one twitch. Right, it doesn't have a one-to-one relationship. But Brian was able to demonstrate that he still had movement and fine-graded motor control underneath his paralysis. You know, that was so fine and invisible to any human eye. No twitch, no force generation, but below force generation, there was still sufficiently eloquent electrical stimulation to be able to derive motor encoding information from it. And so he did that and he was able to control what's 10 degrees of freedom, right? So if you think of the, you know, the Uh human arm, uh, I don't want to misquote myself, but it's somewhere like the human hand has about, I I think it's like 20 degrees of freedom or, you know, I'm I'm sure there's a statistic out there that I'm just misquoting, (laughs) but a high, a high amount of freedom, which is allows us a ton of freedom of movement. And uh, he was able to control 10 degrees of freedom simultaneously with good resolution. And, you know, that, what that says is, you know, if we had a custom design soft, a custom design piece of hardware, we could implant it in these people and listen to how they actually want to move without teaching them a new interface. They just go back to, you know, things as things as they were, mm-hmm. you know, and so he was an abdominal spirit. And uh, unfortunately, he, he had complications, you know, later in life, and um, we weren't able to conclude the research. But you know, he was just uh, just the coolest guy that went from downhill mountain biking to skiing black diamonds as a quadriplegic to advancing basic research in a place that, you know, we never knew it was possible. And, um, you know, I I think the world of him and, and reflect that the world is just a little bit less bright with, in his absence. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's wow. he's a heck of a guy, and I think of people like him all the time. And that's, you know, it sounds trite to say, you know, when one door closes, another opens, or the worst thing in your life can become your best best opportunity. But you look at situations like that where he could have just wallowed in self pity, just said, "I was an active guy. I now can't do what I want," and he pushed and he pushed, and he was able to do what he wanted, not not necessarily in the same way, but like you said, he pushed research forward. He was an inspiration to so many people. And it's not that you would ever want to wish some tragedy like that on anybody. And yet he was able to take that and have a full life. And I think about that every time I work with somebody that's had something catastrophic happen to them. And I know it's not the time they want to hear it, but I I have to say it in that moment. I, I try to tell them your life can go on. I have blind patients that are lawyers. I have people that have horrible disabilities that still have full lives with loved ones and careers. And in the moment when everything goes dark or you lose function, it seems like the end. And yet that's the time where some people really step into their own 
And like I said, like I know most patients when they're sitting in that hospital bed and they've just lost function or sight and I tell them, hey, you can have a full life. That's not the time they're going to hear it. But I hope as they think on it later and as they're trying to go through some of those trials, I, I hope they think back of that and say, you know, I, I can do this. People have done it. So that, that's a great example. And I, I didn't know you could do any of those things. I didn't know you could get back on a ski slope as a, as a, quadriplegic. As a quadriplegic. I thought you had to have some function in the hands or something to be back on those slopes. That's, that's amazing to me. Well, I mean, think about how, how incredibly daunting it would be to go up on the slopes with like a, a duct taped together. Well, it wasn't duct taped together. It was a, <laughs> it was a well-engineered product, sure. but there are only two or three of them in existence. You're a prototype. And, <laughs> yeah. Some, some yeah. kind of advanced prototype yeah. with only a straw to save your life. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and relying on so many layers of support versus just your natural so ankles and legs. Trusted so you guys like so much. Too much. <laughs> that speaks no, he to did. the relationship you guys had built over time, caring for him and listening to him and working with him for him to get to the point where together you all came up with this and and he was willing to give it a shot. It speaks volumes to the amount of care that went into this. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was just super, and I and I think that I'm just glad that we didn't ever have anything bad happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. So Dave, I had another patient that I thought would be pretty funny. So this was a gentleman that unfortunately, you know, struggled in the the depths of depression. And, you know, came to the conclusion that suicide was his best option. And um, unfortunately, he attempted suicide, but was unsuccessful in its completion and suffered an injury to the back of the brain called the occipital lobe and acquired Anton syndrome, which is a cortical blindness where he is his, I, you know, you could describe it better than I, but he was technically able to see, but couldn't actually uh, resolve any meaningful any any meaningful ideas about the world world from his visual input and it's a short story but i remember walking into the room and having him describe what i look like which was great because <laughs> apparently according to my voice i'm overweight brown-haired wearing glasses i still somehow had freckles thankfully and <laughs> And he said, he said that my shirt had a stain on it. And then he, which was oddly specific. That is and then specific. he, you know, and this is a guy that's guaranteed unable to see and, and was completely, um, completely blind. And then, and then looking like Metallica with like a bandana across his eyes, he turns to the side to somebody to, to, to where he thought another person was standing. And he said, listen to me now, this is the day that we all die, you know? And, and then <laughs> when asked orientation questions about what day is it, sir? Where are we, sir? And so, you know, I don't know how much you can use for your podcast on that one, <laughs> but it is, it is just the best story because somehow he turned to this like resident, you know, looked like 10 degrees off from where they're standing, confabulated that there's somebody else there. And then in response to the orientation question, do you know where we are? And he was pretty accurate. Do you know what your name is? Very accurate. 
what time is it? Or what day is it? He goes, the day that we all die. <laughs> and then just pause for dramatic effect. And so, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit morbid, I know, but I just thought you guys needed to hear that. <laughs> so, and you know, this guy yeah. went on to do a do great and have a good recovery, but but for a moment there, I, you know, we all got chills up our spine that maybe this is prophetic. <laughs> That's the thing we often talk about. Sometimes it seems morbid, but in the in the moment, it's just it is what it is. We have to cope with it somehow. It's it's tough for the patient. It's tough for us. We just have to get through it. And humor is one of our greatest defense mechanisms is how we deal with a lot of trauma in the world. And Antone's syndrome is really interesting because like you said, it's the ultimate confabulation. So, and that happens with a lot of stroke patients or brain patients when you don't know the answer, but it also happens with just kids. If kids don't know the right yeah. answer, they know you're coming up that you want an answer. And so they confabulate. They're not lying to you. Like their brain tells them what the right answer is. And that's the same mm -hmm. thing with stroke patients. They don't know the answer. And so their brain comes up with the most obvious thing, or they come up with what they think they should say. And with Antones, they can't see, but they don't admit or they don't really realize they don't see. The brain just comes up with this story and it just comes up with what it thinks the world is. They've mm -hmm. even done some interesting st studies. This is completely off topic, but where people have had injuries to the corpus callosum, so where the right brain and the left brain, they used mm -hmm. to do surgeries or sometimes they still do when people have uh, epilepsy. And every uh -huh. once in a while, they have to divide that structure. Mm -hmm. And if you ask a question, what they say might be different than what they write. So the brain controls different things. And speech and language and written language versus spoken language are stored in different places. So you can ask somebody about themselves and tell them to write it and also to say it. And if they're able to do both, sometimes they will give you completely different answers or answers that are at odds. And it's just fascinating what the brain's capable of. It doesn't want to admit there's a problem. And so it just comes up with an answer. And Chris's answer was that he was an overweight brunette instead of a, a very attractive redhead. Say, uh, our, yeah, our uh, kid no. does this all the time. Like as they, I mean, they get better as they get older, right? And it kind of goes away, but man, all the time. But also I think of my grandmother who had dementia. And mm -hmm. it like that, the things that she would say, like progressively, or the things that she wouldn't put together, right? It's kind of like, she knows I want an answer. She knows it's close. She's going to come up with something to say. And it's just not quite there. But she did not tell me that was the day we'd all die, though. She didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a kind of a terrifying thing for a human to say to you. <laughs> Creepier when it's a kid that says it to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was said, it was said like, uh, you know, I imagined the album cover from uh, Metallica. I don't remember <laughs> the name of the album. What was it? Anyway, it's fantastic. You know, just with the, with the blind, the blindfolded justice, right. With the scales intense. <laughs> All right. Well, well, this other, I have one more anecdote that I need to share with you if you have a moment to indulge. We definitely have a moment to indulge. All right. So I had the privilege of working at the VA in the amputee clinic, meaning that people that have acquired limb loss through either trauma or through other, other means like diabetes need long-term care, meaning that they need to get 
uh, prosthetics to be able to walk. And then when they acquire injuries, either to the other leg that's overused or whatever, they, they need long-term care. And so we develop these amazing relationships with people that have lost their limbs and get to know them for 10, 15 years, and usually the rest of their life. And we constantly give them newer and better prosthetics and uh, watch them achieve wonderful things. Um, occasionally, though, we get, we get super surprised by individuals that uh, kind of exceed design parameters. And one of these individuals kind of caught, it was, it was late on a Thursday, sometime in midsummer in Utah. It was hot and dry and dusty where we were, but this guy called from the middle of nowhere, Nevada, uh, like around somewhere between Reno and the Ruby Mountains. And, <laughs> and he called, he lived in a camper most of the time on BLM lands, and he was really cagey about telling us where he'd live because he felt like somebody was going to find out where he's living and his secret jerky recipe or something, and he didn't want to <laughs> share. But he's missing a leg on the right below below the knee, so he had about six inches of additional leg below the knee, and then it ended there. He acquired this this leg this limb loss because he was diabetic, and diabetes attacks the small vessels in your body, kind of sugar curing things, and so he lost his toes, and then it became infected, and we had to do an amputation. And then, but the same process affected his eyes and deprived him of you know visual acuity. So he couldn't see that well. And so, he, you know, he'd always show up with cuts all over his arms from, you know, whittling something or trying to tan a hide and he'd just slice his finger open and then wrap it oh, up with geez. toilet paper and duct tape, you know, which, which if the end of the world comes, just give me enough gorilla, gorilla tape and we'll be all right. But, <laughs> you know, this, this guy called us, he kind of left a scratchy cagey message that there was a problem. His new prosthetic leg you know, which cost somewhere in the order of like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, wasn't working, and he was really frustrated with it. And then there was like a string of curse words, and he hung up. And we thought, oh, what's going on? We tried to contact him multiple times, couldn't get in touch with him. And then he, um, fortunately, like about a week later, called us back. Kind of a similar story, but we got a little bit more information. We we're finally able to say, hey, why don't you come in? He said, you know what? I hate coming in, but I've been shoving my be I've been shoving my stump into this freaking <laughs> freaking prosthetic and it's never engaging. I can't keep it on. It keeps falling off. What's the deal? I thought you guys knew what you're doing. And so we said, <laughs> Hey, you know, apologies up front. You know, I'm sure it's not user error. There's gotta be something going on. Why don't you come in and we'll take a look at it. And so it was again, like another two weeks or whatever during this time, one has to assume he's been trying to, get the prosthetic leg on and for, you know, for people with visual impairment, you can't just give them like, uh, uh, and, and sensory impairment, in their fingers, you can't just give them some mechanism that needs a lot of fiddling and delicate mechanisms. You need kind of, so in this guy, we have a roll on gel liner. It's kind of like a silicone liner that uh, fits on the leg. And then on the end, there's a metal pin with flanges on it that fits into a female interface mm -hmm. with, uh, like a ratcheting mechanism. So you step on it, it ratchets in, and then you hop on a little bit further, and then it's on securely. Well, he came in. We're happy to see him. He's grumpy. 
He's uh, tired. He's dusty. He's telling us all about his trials and tribulations. And eventually, you know, 40 minutes into the meeting or whatever, we ask, can we see your leg? You know, 10 minutes in the meeting. I'm probably exaggerating, but 10 minutes (laughs) in the meeting, we we ask, can we see his leg? What's going on? You know, and uh, we see a round object with multiple dents all over it. Uh, And uh, it was kind of like concentric circles going down and perfectly aligned with the female receptacle. I'm like, what in the world is that? And so we bring it over to the prosthetics lab, and it turns out that it's a nine millimeter bullet that has fallen into the female receptacle, and he's been pounding on it with oh, a stainless geez. steel <laughs> rod, you know, this whole time for weeks out in the desert trying to get his leg on, and we're just grateful that he didn't blow up that round. And, yeah. Uh, but it was, it was a cool story. And we, <laughs> just- we were able to extract the bullet, we bought him a junior bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's and he was the world's happiest guy for like another few weeks. <laughs> so he has a bullet inside the female part and then this male part is getting shoved into it, basically like a firing pin, almost designed <laughs> it, like to, yeah. to fire the bullet. And just by sheer luck, it doesn't hit the center pin and blow up. Blow up. Blow up. His prosthetic yeah. would have blown up. Yeah. With... In the middle of the yes. desert with no care around, just as a diabetic bleeding. Yeah, that would have been <laughs> catastrophic. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. But, you know, but, like, the the whole setting was perfect for, like, a, a Sundance short, short film, you know? <laughs> like, this dusty environment, a likable curmudgeon, a, uh, a bullet somehow wedged in the prosthetic. It's just incredible. You and know? ends with a cheeseburger. And, and what is a guy with poor vision in the middle of the desert needing just random bullets around for? Is he just is he shooting li- is he shooting lizards on his front porch? Is it just for himself? <laughs> I will tell you this. I don't uh, know his reason, but I bet you he had a really good reason. <laughs> I guarantee good. it. I mean, to be honest, there are a lot of critters out there. So there are some critters. I'm, yeah. I'm glad he had some defense. <laughs> How much he could employ that defense is is arguable. Yeah, yeah the accuracy of his uh, gunshots uh, pretty uh, pretty suspect since he couldn't even tell he had a bullet in his prosthetic leg. But uh, yeah, yeah, again the indomitable spirit. Yeah, you know, nothing, nothing slowing him down. Not even cutting his fingers multiple times, whittling was going to stop him from mm-hmm. carving the next piece of wood. That's- Right. No. So <laughs> yeah, those are the little colorful anecdotes. And I, and I yeah. think that I have some like, you know, more poignant ones and sad ones, but I want to just leave it there. And I think you guys have uh, indulged me enough. I really no. appreciate your time. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate you coming on. I, I really do love talking to everybody that comes on. I just love the dedication people have for their work. When it, when we get stuck in the day in day out of what we do, it becomes difficult the work, mm-hmm. the medicine, the money, the patients, insurance companies, the slow moving, everything. Mm-hmm. And then when I talk to people, this is what we focus on, though. This is what we talk about is those those moments with people, the people that mm-hmm. changed our lives. And it just helps me love what I do still and just kind of look past all the negative stuff. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on. And I can tell how much you love what you do and those patients that mean a lot to you that have passed on and the ones you're still working with it's it's special i mean it's special to be in medicine it really is to have those relationships with people and also 
we're friends. It was good to talk to you. I mean, it's just yeah. fun. Like I've lost contact with so many people over the years. There's people I've tried to stay in touch with and it's just hard sometimes. And mm-hmm. it's great to reconnect. It's great to talk, see your face again, mm-hmm. your brunette, yeah. overweight yeah. face. You got disturbingly close. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> No, but thank you for coming on, Chris. We appreciate you. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.